Well, that was a for some insight here. John yeah. Lawyer is a very interesting person. Uh, uh, you might say a gentleman and a scholar. Yeah, I think that's perfect. A gentleman and a scholar. So let's dive in. Oh, wait. Was there something we were going to nah, forget it? Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Subscribe. Go to our website. Help us create more and more moped outlaws. And um, if you have any comments or questions or you think you'd be a good guest, reach out to us at the hosts at mopedoutlaws.com. Yeah. And um, if you see Adrenochrome Cola in the store, buy it because they're our sponsor. Two outlaws on the lamb, taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. And now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark. And here we are with another episode of Moped Outlaws. And along for the ride is John Lawyer. I'm going to say spiritual guru, but I know that you would probably (laughs) wince at that. (laughs) Yeah. You are a spiritual practitioner, though. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, I agree. And an ex-military person who has um, quite a lot of history in the military along with your spiritual journey. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this might be a great time to ask you, like, what's your background, John? I I grew up in rural Oklahoma, like small town, about 8,000 people, Uh, you know, good, good upbringing and all that Uh, had its ups and downs for sure. And, uh, I knew, I, I knew I wanted to get out and see the world and I, I knew college wasn't for me. So I enlisted in the army right out of high school. Uh, that would have been about a year before nine 11. So, you know, right around 2000. And by the time I did basic training, got my job training in counterintelligence and all that, I got to my first station and that was about six months before the war. So, I would spend about two and a half of my five-year enlistment in Kuwait, uh, supporting troops in Afghanistan. I was there for the invasion of Iraq. We invaded from Kuwait and spent uh, over a year and a half in Baghdad, Iraq, as a civilian after I, I got out of the Army, doing the same job, essentially. And then spent about six and a half consecutive years in Kandahar, Afghanistan, southern Afghanistan. So that was kind of a... A trip. <laughs> so, so were you civilian when you were in Afghanistan too? Yeah. Civilian when I was in Afghanistan as well. And is it safe to uh, suggest that as a result of it being counterintelligence that you can't really talk a lot about what you did there? I, I can talk some about it. Yeah. I mean, uh, my earlier time in the mill and my time in the army, my time in Iraq was more strategic counterintelligence. Like, uh, Myself supporting efforts against nation states, Russia, Iran, that kind of thing. Um, uh, bigger picture, um, like whole country kind of things. Then when I was in Afghanistan, it was a counterintelligence mission, but it was a very tactical, operational on the ground. Um, our job was to protect Kandahar Airfield, which at the time was the busiest runway on planet Earth. And so we had to protect the planes, the people, 
uh, all that kind of stuff. And so we had a, it was kind of an asymmetric warfare. We would collect intelligence, put it with other intelligence and, uh, it was kind of an asymmetric warfare kind of thing where we had to go out and like mitigate the efforts of the enemy to attack us. Are you open to ask me asking you about, um, the validity of the Iraq invasion? Absolutely. I, I, yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't think, I think Iraq, and I don't mean this in, I'm, I'm pretty geopolitically educated, uh, due to my job and, and I studied a lot. Even if I didn't go to college, uh, I think Iraq is probably the single biggest, uh, strategic mistake in the history of our country. Hmm. I think it trumps Vietnam, uh, significantly. I don't think Syria happens, uh, destabilizes if, if we don't go to Iraq. I think a lot of people don't die that are civilians in Iraq. And so we don't have the Syrian refugee crisis either. I don't, uh, Libya probably doesn't happen. Uh, uh, we, I, Iraq was a stable, entity a known entity we kind of had saddam in a box people don't realize it but before the invasion of iraq we bombed saddam weekly we bombed fiber optic nodes and communication nodes and radar sites uh, as part of operation southern watch and operation northern watch uh prior to the invasion of iraq we had him in a box he was contained does that make the former president of the united states a war criminal <laughs> I got to say, uh, I don't, I'm not making light of it. It's just, I'm out of politics these days. I'm, I don't talk about politics. I will tell you that I got married in Kuwait to my wife. We were soldiers and we spent most of our time overseas together doing the same job during all those years. We were not separated very often. I will say the one year we did spend a whole year apart. Our first year of marriage, we got married in Kuwait. We spent our first year of marriage apart. Cause I stayed in Kuwait, keep doing the mission. And she, she got sent home by the army. Cause obviously they weren't going to keep us together. Cause that would make sense. So, um, because of Iraq, cause of the invasion, I, I think that Bush, uh, and Cheney and Rumsfeld and all, all of those guys, I think they knew exactly what they're doing. I think we were going to invade Iraq regardless of whether nine 11 happened or not. Hmm. Uh, you know, you look at like bringing Paul Wolfowitz on at the beginning of the administration. His job was to basically uh, usher in the invasion of Iraq. I mean, that's all factual stuff. I mean, people can look this stuff up. Uh, so, yes, I, I think that we committed war crimes by invading Iraq. Thank you. Did that inform your spiritual journey? Wait, before, we, before we go there, okay. with what you just said, like they were going to invade Iraq. That was part of their policy. Yeah. That kind of reopens the door in my mind, which I thought I had closed permanently, <laughs> about 9-11 having some United States support and happening, because it certainly was the perfect way to get the populace of the United States to support an invasion. I, You know, I, I think for the... <laughs> I think there's always a possibility, I, but I would my my experience with the U.S. government and especially the military industrial complex. It's a very dark place. Uh, it does some good in the world. Don't get me wrong, but like it, it's a very dark place when you when you are part of it for years on end. The U.S. U.S. government's really good at what it does. The U.S. military industrial complex is really good at what it does. It's also less organized than people think it is. It's like this machine that runs itself. 
it's not run by any one person or any any single group of people. Uh, there's fiefdoms in it. You know, it's a very feudal system, uh, more so than people think. It really is uh, a bit of Game of Thrones, probably not that dramatic, but um, it's very hard to pull off a conspiracy of that magnitude, I think. I think it was a happy accident for the administration. I think it was really... I don't mean happy accident. It's not a happy thing. I just meant right. like for them, it was a coincidence that was probably the, the most advantageous thing they could have ever right. experienced. Right. Okay. So that brings me back to my question is being in theater in that regard and being aware of the realities on the ground and the <laughs> lack of justification. Was that like the beginning of your spiritual inquiry? I think we're always on a journey, whether we know it or not. I wasn't consciously on a journey. I think that unconsciously, subconsciously, I was absolutely taking it all in. The longer I was in it, the more I saw the humanity of it. I saw the system chew the enemy up, the quote-unquote enemy. I saw the enemy chew up civilians in the middle. And I saw the, the system chew up myself and my brothers and sisters in arms. And so I think the longer you're part of a war machine, uh, the more you see the human element of everything. If you have any level of empathy, any level of emotional IQ or intelligence, you see that over time, especially if you're willing to admit it to yourself. Cause a lot of people aren't willing to admit that because then it opens them up to being a part of it. And I can, I can say out loud, I was a part of evil, you know, I was part of darkness. Um, and I think that when you see that darkness, when you and then you also see the humanity of it, that definitely opens you up to things about the universe that are like profound and, and meaningful and uh, puts you on a very thoughtful path. So you've done a very deep dive. You're in the process of a deep dive into what is this universe, spirituality, light and dark. Are you still married to the woman you married in Kuwait? I am. We've been married for over 20 years now. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary last year. And, uh, yeah, she's an amazing woman, uh, smart, sharp as a tack, you know. And so it was a, an interesting experience to be able to go through all this with her most for most of that time. And, and we sat right next to each other. We, you know... Um, Almost all the time we work together 24 seven. And, uh, yeah, it's been an, an, an interesting experience to be able to, and it's good to have, have her be able to, some, it was hard when we came home from after our 15 years in the desert on and off, you know, the 12 years in the desert over my first 15 years of my adult life. So coming home, we're both broken. So that was difficult, but we also understood the experience. So that was a positive. And she did this deep dive also. She was kind of more uh, spiritual than I was uh, the whole time that I've known her. So she's always had a, an aspect of spiritual, uh, not like overt practice or anything, but it's always been there. So I think when it happened to me, when I kind of had my moment of understanding or clarity or whatever, whatever it was, uh, she was very uh, prepared to move along that path with me together. So Here's, I'm wondering, in the video I saw, your intro video, you say, I think it was in your young teen years or adolescence, you had this profound sort of eye-opening that kindness was all important in the universe. That was my first 
spiritual moment, even if I didn't realize the time it was spiritual. For me, it was like this moment of like, oh, I, I, kindness is this important thing and I can communicate with people better and, and like the world's a better place. And I was sitting in high, high school and I was a freshman sitting in class and it just kind of occurred to me and it changed, that changed my life. But I didn't realize at the time that it was spiritual, if that makes sense. It does, but here's what I don't quite grok: is how do you go from that experience to I'm going to sign up for the army? <laughs> well, I was aligned with evil in essence. Yeah, yeah I, 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 still, I, I well, I, the thing is, I think when you're young, you can still be idealistic and think, oh, I'm going to go change the world and save the world and make the world a better place. And you can think, oh, the you know, uh, there's so much that you can consume, like and look at in the world that says that there's goodness in that, you know, we're trained, we're taught as a society that that's okay. The, the, you know, the nationalism and um, all that. So I wasn't, I, I was raised Southern Baptist, but I was raised by progressive parents. So I had this like conservative surrounding in Oklahoma that I grew up around, but my parents were liberal progressives. So it was a mix. I had, you know, it's it an interesting kind of split that I had. Um, so I, I didn't see it. I saw it as I wanted to go do counterterrorism. That's kind of what I wanted to do. And I saw that as a very like pristine mission. Uh, that brings up the idea that while there are dark sides within the framework of the military industrial complex, there is an honorable warriorship. That's also real. Is that true for you? Yeah, I think that's true. I, and it's complicated. I, I, the more I've studied spirituality, the more I've studied life, the more I see, you know, obviously there's a darkness, there's great light. And I, I, I believe that we're the gray, we walk that gray path in the middle. We can choose to see the dark. We can choose to kind of focus on the light with our choice, but we're, we're the, if the universe is balanced and everything in the universe is about balance, even mathematically, right? There's all this balance in the universe. Like if, if we are the balance, then we get to choose which way to kind of focus our attention. Uh, and I, I think that the, the U S and Western military industrial complex does a tremendous amount of good in the world. I mean, there's food aid, there's security that happens. You know, we've only had regional wars since world war two. And a lot of that's because the U S has been dicking around all over the planet, you know, uh, doing bad things, but there's been, there's also been a lot of good that has happened. So it's complicated. I think it's complicated. Yeah. If we take that complication, to a very personal level. And from my personal experience, a romantic relationship has a lot of volatility to it. And times where the energies of the individuals are like oil and water and just how has your experience and your outlook on life allowed you to peacefully and honorably traverse those times? That's a good question. I think that one thing I told myself before I ever went to the army, I had this kind attitude and I had this, I told myself before I even joined the army, before I went to basic training, I said, Hey John, don't lose yourself. When you go to basic training, don't lose who you are. I told myself that because I didn't want the army to change my base internal self. And I knew that it could because institutions do that. And I was I was aware enough, even as a kid, to kind of see that. So 
I think not losing myself was helpful in that process. And I think that when it's that Shakespeare quote to thine own self be true. And I think if you're true to yourself, even when you're lost and I was lost, I was lost a lot of this time. Uh, I was still true to myself. Uh, and I think if you stay in tune with that, you have a, a much better chance of making it through this wild ride we're on. You know? So what being true to oneself, like I think about my own self and there's elements where I'm angry or where I'm lost, which means I don't know my way. I don't know where I am. And my experience of that is I am questioning who I am. So how do you stay true to yourself or what does that mean for you in the midst of being really lost? I think you have to kind of lean into that. If you don't know who you are and you're, you're questioning it, or you're searching, then you kind of have to lean into it a bit and think, who am I? And or what am I? What are, what are my values? What are my beliefs? And who am I separate from all the noise? Like we got, uh, the pull of society that we have, right? Like there's all this stuff that society, all these tribes that tell us we have to do this or be that, or don't do this or don't be that. And if we're, if we're reducing that noise and we're kind of introspective a bit, we're doing ourselves a service and society, society teaches us from a very young age that we have to be someone for someone else. We have to be a hero for someone else. We didn't, but no one ever tells us to take care of ourselves. No one ever, like very rarely are we taught specifically self-love, self-care on this meaningful level, um, more than just keeping ourselves alive to be part of the conveyor belt. So how do we uh, listen to ourselves, love ourselves, and take care of ourselves in a way that supports that journey, that introspection that we need to have to figure out who we are? This is a, a good opportunity to sort of tell people why this conversation's been moving towards the spiritual. And that's because you are part of the founder of something called the Kishar Spiritual Community. And I'd like for you to just say a little bit about what that community is based on and then how you arrived at creating it. Sure. Yeah. When I got home from Afghanistan, I spent about seven years lost, just not kind of, just kind of wandering around in life. Uh, not sure who I was. I didn't really have an identity outside of my, my job and, and what I'd been. And, uh, a couple of years ago, I had kind of a moment of, uh, understanding or clarity, some call it awakening and the world just made sense. The universe made sense. It was a very warm thing. I, I felt the universal oneness of everything that we're all connected and I felt very strongly that regardless of if, whether you were a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian, that we're all saying the same thing different ways and that we could have better conversations and share our journeys with one another. And I, I felt like there was room for authentic, meaningful connection in the digital age as well. So I wanted to create a place where I couldn't necessarily help people, but I could help people help themselves uh, and find their wholeness within, whether they knew they were whole or not, or, or maybe yeah. explore their journey. And so I wanted to create a digital, uh, nonprofit spiritual community where, uh, where that could happen. And so we called it Kishar and, uh, Kishar is, uh, the, 
Sumerian goddess of, of Mother Earth or Gaia. And we thought that is pretty cool. And it also represents the line on the horizon, which we think encapsulates that journey that we're all on. And uh, that's been what I've been doing every day for uh, two plus years now is, is trying to make that happen. And, and we made it happen and, and brought people together and uh, have created a place where people can have discussions and uh, there's daily affirmations and guided meditations and just stuff on how to live life better. Cause even though we're spiritual, we also live in the real world and we've got to navigate that crossroads between our spiritual existence and our existence here in, in this third dimension of, of reality we all share with everybody. Can you say a little bit about your wake up call? Um, one of the things that's sort of a thread in this podcast is that both Greg and I at various times in our lives have had psychedelic experiences. And if you look at our logo, there's mushrooms falling the back of the moped. So I'm wondering if your um, awakening or wake up call was facilitated by anything other than just happenstance. Uh, mine wasn't, but I've had, I've had friends that have done the ayahuasca thing that had a profound, uh, awakening. And, um, I mean, I've read about, you know, Baba Ram Dass and, and his experience with Timothy Leary and, and the development, early development of psychedelics, uh, in your case, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't part of the landscape. No, it just happened. Uh, I don't know if it was the DMP in my brain or (laughs) was there any kind of stressor in the environment? Was there conditions? Yeah. Okay. I, so there was, there was you know, COVID happened. That was a big event in the world. Um, and then I got, I'm young. I'm not, I'm not younger. I got shingles at age 39 on the, the left side of my face and actually lost part of vision in my left eye. And I still can still see, but it's, it's blurrier. And um, it was pretty bad. It, it was, it, it hit me and I, I could have lost my eye and I have this big scar right where my third eye would be. And I think that that's significant. Um, I think it helped wake me up. Uh, that 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 third eye, that that intuitive, um, universal intuitive vision that exists in people, the connection with with myself, my divine self, my self with a capital S. You know, one of the tropes that seems to keep coming up in the spiritual life is its pain and stress under extreme conditions that bring up spiritual enlightenment, which seems in opposition to this thought of divinity being love. I tell you, that's a great point, Greg. I, my belief in that is if you, if you stare into the abyss and you see great darkness, um, which, you know, it sounds like uh, you guys have some experience with, uh, <laughs> I mean, you're seeing, I think then you become in touch with that darkness too. I think people in our society, in our culture, we shun darkness. We pretend it doesn't exist. We, we, we look away from it, even when it's right in front of us. I mean, I spent 12 years in deserts because Americans couldn't come to the fact, couldn't, couldn't face the fact that there were soldiers in the desert dying and they didn't care. I don't mean that in a callous way. I just meant, People forgot about it. It was like Korea. Like there was these forgotten war that was actually occurring while people were forgetting about it. So people, people shun darkness. They don't want to see it. They don't want to look at it. I mean, even when I came back from war, people didn't want to talk about it with me. Like not in real terms. Like, right. oh, you were there. What was it like? And then you're done. Like there's no like 
extended conversation about that. So people see this darkness. And when you see that, then you then you know there's great light. And I don't think the divine is all bright. I think the divine is this loving, kind thing. I think that's within it. I really do. But we are, I, I mean, metaphysically, we are God. Like, everybody's like, well, oh, why would God do this? It's like, well, what are you doing today to make the world a better place? You're God. Go make go make the world a better place. That's, you know. So I, it's God isn't light or dark. God, God is just us, that universal divine connection with everything. And so it's not, it's not completely light. It's a choice. There's a, I think there's a choice there. Yes, I, I agree. Um, I think because of my experience of being a parent, it's become very obvious to me that freedom of choices an integral part to love. If I'm forcing any other entity into something, that is not an act of love. So that's, to me, the element of why is God letting this happen? Because you're doing it, and God's right. not going to force you to stop. Yeah, I, I, we're taught that God is this anthropomorphic, like, human humanoid type thing. Right. Like, we're not... And we're, we're told, like, I was raised Southern Baptist. We're told that's not the case. But our society and all of our literature and our, our, our symbolism and everything puts that idea in our, our head from a very young age that God is this humanoid, humanist thinking type thing. It's even a sentient thing. And I don't think God's sentient. Right. Well, you even earlier said there's this element of we are existing in this 3D plane. And I heard this woman just two days ago talking about how she s sees our body as an animal body. The way you see a dog is an animal body. A bird is an animal body. And as I heard that, I realized that's a very foreign concept to me, to think of our bodies as animal. It's more... I mean, I, that, I mean that's that idea of we're just a spiritual being having a human existence. Right. Yeah, right, yeah. right. But part of what she was saying is she was talking about the um, necessity of embodying knowledge, that if it's all in the head as logical knowledge, it's not really going to, like, you could have someone who, myself as an example, who has the mental knowledge of right, wrong, et cetera, but I'm still acting against what's best for me because for whatever reason there's karma for lack of a better word in my blood and bone that hasn't been healed yet so it's still in action yeah that's a great i think it's a great way to look at it you know that uh it really it goes back to like what you said it's it's it's, it's choices it's uh and if, if, yeah, and I love the idea of karma that in our, our karma is in this life, but our karma is probably in previous lives as well. I mean, people, and the thing is like people believe in karma, right? Because you, you told as a kid, oh, well, this person's an old soul. Well, what does that mean? Like, right. so that means that even in the Judeo-Christian world, people believe in having been around this world for a really long time, this universe for a really long time, like just that concept of calling someone an old soul, 
even Judeo-Christians believe that, even if they don't say it out loud. There's a piece about this, which is that we've entered a period of human evolution where the ability to see beyond the dogmas that are generationally handed down has been granted us. And there's an opening now. And you just kind of described that, right? Then also the information age has us able to access so much more information that now the breadth and depth and complexity of how each society has created a story about what they've seen in themselves as God, quote unquote. And, and, you know, we have all the different fables we have, you know, all these different, the, the Christian, the Judean, the Buddhist, and the, you know, um, all of those different things where the curiosity I'm having is again about the name Kishar. And you said that it's the Sumerian goddess. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you know about that particular spiritual doctrine and why you and your wife decided that that was the most relevant to you. What is it about that framework that was so interesting to you? Well, for me, I'm very interested in how we started. I'm very, I'm very interested in how we came, you know, I like, there's lots of different theories, you know, from, from the Bible on Adam and Eve to aliens, right. Um, and everything in between on how we, we, but archeologically, anthropologically, we, we walked out of Africa and together we were, we were one in Africa we were this one, one thing. And we walked out of Africa around the world. And I was interested in the fact that Sumerian, uh, when you study it, the Sumerian tradition and Mesopotamia, that's when we first started writing. That's when we, we started settling down and more agriculture and less nomad, a little bit less nomadic and started recording things. And so that's the, that's as far back as we can go and really see people start to record things that we know that we could, we could go back and read and, and think about. And that interested me quite a bit that the, the ancient, origins of civilization um along with a couple of others as you know look at the the vedic traditions of the hindus and the indus valley and um and that and then obviously over in in north africa and the nile so it just interested me where we came from and that if we could I, i believe if we can if we can recognize that we all came from the same place that's a beautiful idea well what did we all think back then is the reason we all have similar beliefs. Because I believe that when we look at ancient writings, if you look at all the writings throughout the past centuries and from different religions, different philosophies, different spiritual constructs, we're all saying similar things. It's almost it's almost painful to read it because people are so uh, dedicated to one or the other, but it's so, it's so close to being the same thing. Is that because we all believe the same thing when we walked out of Africa? Um so I want to go back as close to the beginning as I could. And you can only go back so far where there's a recording of, of thought. And so that is kind of what led us to say, let's go back that far and, and look at, at what was going on. And then it's Kishar herself, the character that appears in the Sumerian doctrine. What do you know about her? What more, what more can you say about her? Uh, you know, it's the divine feminine. It was the divine feminine, and obviously that's a contrast to the divine masculine in, in Sumerian uh, lore, which was kind of based off the sky and the sun. 
And that's why Keisha represents the line on the horizon, because she's that separation between the feminine and the masculine. And I think that you, you talk about divine feminine, divine masculine, what does that mean? It's just a balance of the universe. It's that that yin and yang, the black and white, you know, and, and there's obviously the balance in between. And so she, she uh, um, was very important to, to, to the, those people. And uh, I don't think there's any better concept than the earth and, and Gaia and this idea of, of mother earth being the thing that, I mean, we walk on it, we, we consume it, we breathe it, you know, it's this whole thing that sustains us. And if you go back to other origin stories, like, I don't know if you've read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, but it's a great book. It talks about the Native American indigenous, uh, the Anishinaabe, and the origin story of Sky Woman and how we came to live on Turtle Island. And um, I think you go back to the very beginning of these these Earth origin stories. They're all very interesting. And so I think Kishar, the goddess, the Sumerian goddess, that's what it was about. It was about abundance and and sustainability and um, life, you know, that that green nature life. I have a question with your military background and what you're communicating about right now. I hear a lot of that. There is life in the elements of Earth, like there's life in rocks and trees, etc. And from my understanding, the habits of the United States flag are based on from a military belief that it is a living entity, which is why you don't leave it out in a storm or at night, there needs to be a light shining on it. Have you, are you familiar with this? I, yes, I'm, I'm familiar with, with that. Yeah. I, that's a, that's a really interesting question. A very metaphysical question, Greg. Uh, it's, the I, 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 it's the principle of animism is what you're talking about, Greg. Right. But what here's the, my point is in something that we, that I personally see military as a very stoic, here's this very spiritual train of thought in a very concrete stoic entity, the military, as you said, like you've earlier described the primary aspect of military is dark evil, but here's this very light element of thought. The flag is alive. It's a living entity. If you look at that from a metaphysical perspective, combine it with a philosophical perspective, I think that could be very true because I mean, if you look at the United States and people say it's a beacon of hope and democracy, I mean, the U.S. has done so much bad in the world, but it's done a lot of good. I mean, it's, it has has been a, a positive example for so many cultures and, and um, that's tainted with some of the stuff that we've done. But you can also look at all the good things that happened. And and having been around the world and seen other places, this is a great place to live. It's a really interesting situation where that this country is such a, a great place to have an existence. And. The, the flag being this living thing, this, this, this ideal. If enough people believe in something, if you have this collective group of people thinking and, and intentionally focused on something, it is, it becomes this living thing because we share, we have our individual consciousness, which creates our individual reality. But then we have this, that's all part, all these bubbles of individual consciousness become this collective. And that's a, incredibly 
like massively powerful thing. Like just so yeah, I mean it it absolutely is a living thing because we see it as such. That the the Statue of Liberty, the beacon of democracy, the hope of the world. Um that's a lot of powerful intention going towards a single thing. So here we are in this understanding that there's a divine masculine warriorship that defends the living embodiment of all things, rock, paper, scissors, water, fire, air, earth. And then the, the design of the constitution that the flag represents is supposed to be a living document, which means that those conscious awarenesses are able to influence the doctrine that we all abide by and abides an interesting word, right? When you think of it, especially in spiritual terms. And one of the things we're facing right now in the American culture is the kind of calcification of the ability of that document to be, to be renewed in its great, in the greatest sense, the greenness is, is deteriorating because there's so much corruption and there's so much, you know, low vibration, uh, you know, darkness within the framework of what we're doing. Um, did you, you mentioned factions within the framework of the, someone was calling me, so I had to stop them. The, the framework of the military. And I'm wondering if you see like, there's this white hat, gray hat, black hat dynamic that people describe things at. And I'm wondering if that's part of what you meant. Uh, yes. I think there's a lot of people in that, in, uh, the military industrial complex that want to do in the government, the U S government, they want to do good. I think most people are good. Um, they want to do good things. I, I think power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. is a true statement. I, how, so I have a story about this. I was a young E4 you know, junior enlisted soldier in Kuwait doing my job. I was a, I was kind of a fire firebrand. I was really, uh, the, the, I would always ask why I was always trying to do the right thing. I was, uh, and I, I was talking to the head civilian in our brigade, who's like a, a colonel equivalent, really important guy. And I, I was, there's this thing I knew we needed to do because it was the right thing to do. It was the thing that we should be doing. And I was arguing with him about it, which I wasn't really supposed to be doing. <laughs> and cause he's a colonel equivalent. And I was, and I was like, and I was like, we got to do this. It's the right thing to do. And he's like lawyer. He's like, it's not about what's doing. It's not about doing what's right. It's about power. Hmm. And, and that was a very sobering and seminal moment for me in my time in the military industrial complex. Cause here I am being yelled at by this GS 15. I think I might've cried. Maybe it's possible. <laughs> uh, you know, I, young, young idealistic specialist lawyer. And, um, and, and I knew at that moment is this, big thing where I'm like, I, I'm part of this. This is a bad system uh, of it wasn't it was about money and budgets and funding. And I'm not going to do this because it's not my it's not our unit's mission and we're not going to get paid for it by big mothership Pentagon or, or you know, government. And I, I continually ran into these fiefdoms and these feudal systems throughout. I mean, when I was in Iraq for 18 months, I worked for CIFA, Counterintelligence Field Activity, which was a pet project on Rumsfeld, Black Budget. Um, CIFA should never probably existed. It was kind of extraneous to the whole system, but it existed because Donald Rumsfeld wanted it to exist. And it was, it wasn't really serving any 
great purpose because Defense Intelligence Agency already existed. CIA already existed. All this other stuff already existed to do what CIFA was doing. But yet here, here I am for 18 months in Baghdad working for this black budget, you know, not three-letter agency, but four-letter agency. <laughs> and it wasn't – our mission was okay. We were doing okay stuff in Iraq, but the, 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 entity, the entity itself didn't need to exist. Do you think it's possible that CIFA needed to exist because the CIA and the DIA are um, possibly corrupted by other influencers and that Donald Rumsfeld needed to know the direct line of the information source? I, th- I think there's something to that. I think that there was a, they created, Donald Rumsfeld created that at a DOD level specifically as a hedge against the uh, power back, the, the power, because, uh, the executive branch of our government can only change systems so much because systems are, are held by rightfully so by technocrats and people who are good at their job. And so they can only appoint and they can only, there's only so many appointed positions that they can change out everybody else, our career intelligence professionals or whatever. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely believe that was his hedge to create more influence and control within counterintelligence and the intelligence community for sure. So turning our attention back to Kishar, what is your aspiration for this organization as you see it unfolding in your life over the next decade or so? What is it that you're breathing life into it? I I would like to see people be able to connect with one another, to be able to find what their own unique spiritual path is, to be empowered within themselves. I think we can all walk our own fiercely individual personal spiritual path and we can walk that path right next to somebody else who's on a different path and we can talk to each other about it ask great questions find better answers um i can i can you know i can believe in in these universal ideals that all religions are valid um i respect them all all spiritual constructs all philosophies self-help tenets and you can believe in whichever of those you want and and we can uh, find our way in a way that is open-minded and brings people together and is not Facebook or Instagram or anything else. It's this less trolls, no ads, like these smaller it's communities. It's being our consciousness. It's actually emboldening it. And, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All, all of that. So how do you and your wife navigate the areas of power necessary in creating an entity in a spiritual manner? That's a good question. Uh, very carefully. I've said a lot, I've sat around and thought a lot about community and dogma and rules. And how do you, how do you, how do you end up in a, a universal community that is non-dogmatic and, has as few rules as possible that also doesn't descend in anarchy. And um, that's a, it's a hard line to walk. I think we do it well. You know, we're a nonprofit. That's the first step. And, you know, we don't take salaries. That's a good step. Um, and saying that uh, from a power perspective, uh, you know, I've lucky enough to have been part of systems and power and, and like even had power myself within that system. And so I don't desire or seek, seek that. Um, and I can tell people that up front and say, I've been through this. It's informed me. I will help protect our community, uh, with you. And 
jointly and, and nothing's ever going to look perfect, uh, from a, a community system. So we just have to do, you know, community, this whole idea of governance and community and, and how the tribe organizes itself is it's messy. It's always going to be messy. It's always going to be human because we're human. So we just have to do the best we can is I think that's the best. And that's the most authentic answer I can give you. Has um, any work happened in your community with the racial elements and dialogues that are currently happening? And that's a great question. And I will give you a very honest answer to that. I, I, I was raised progressive liberal. I was super invested in politics before my spiritual event. Um, I was a big Democrat, big, big progressive liberal. And now I still care about all that stuff because I'm still, again, I'm a human, but in the, in the, in the, the view of our community, when it comes to politics, when it comes to social justice, I, I personally say, let's focus on ourselves. Cause if we love ourselves and we take care of ourselves first and just, and make ourselves better, we're going to make the world better around us. And that's how we create great change in this world. And so if you want to go do politics, if you want to go do social justice, do that. That's a fair thing to do. It's a great thing to do, but do it on your own. Uh, start with yourself, you know, ask yourself, what have I done today to make the world a better place for myself? But what have I done to make the world a better place for someone else? Not my family, not my immediate nuclear friends or family, but, but someone in the world that's not you or not your family. Like, what have you done today to make the world a better place for, for those people? I ask those questions and kind of have that approach and we can change the world. That's my, that's my view. Right. Okay. So taking that very literally, what did you do yesterday that someone you don't know is better off for your action? That's a great question. Uh, I am doing what I can to uh, study, to be able to communicate with people better and to try to put a message out in the world that can help someone. And I have no investment in that. Whether I do a podcast, whether I'm, you know, I do, I do podcasts and I, I, I try to go out and talk and speak to people and, um, I don't get paid for it. I don't have any compensation for it. And that's my giving back. I'm, I'm here on this earth. My purpose is to help people help themselves find their wholeness, find their light, even if they can't see it, help them on their path. And I'm not expecting anything in return. So that's my, uh, that's my giving back. And and I did that yesterday. You know, I gave my time yesterday to, to, to the world and time's a beautiful thing. So is it accurate if I solidify what I've heard and believe that Keyshawn is a, am I pronouncing it correct? Keyshawn? It's Keyshar, Keyshar. It's Keyshar. So Keyshar is a place where I, Greg could go and create, join a community and create a home. And from that home, I then can be empowered to go out in the world as I choose to help and improve. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing, knowing that you love yourself, knowing that you've aligned in mind, body and soul and, and, and practicing spirituality in a way that makes sense, the most sense for you, not based on what anybody else says. Yeah, that sounds very powerful. It sounds like Kishar. Is a that's a very powerful offering to people. 
Well, thank you. I, I, I really appreciate that. That's what we want. We want people to be empowered in themselves. So that's the goal. All right. Power that is empowered in harmony with the natural forces of the universe. 100%. That's, that's absolutely power it. power over, but power yeah. with. Yeah, exactly. We're in, and we're all part of the same, same one. It feels like many of us are called to step into these spaces, John, like I'm coming to you from a place called Loveology Retreat in Southern California, where men are gathering for work that's about healing and the divine masculine is definitely present in this work. And more and more around me, I see spiritual coaches and spiritual quests being undertaken. And and it seems like there's a kind of bubbling up of consciousness and awareness. And um, it gives me hope. It helps me understand that that, uh, balance is possible, that it isn't that just the darkness rules or that we're heading down the path to Armageddon or hell or any of those things. Uh, may be true that we are in for some suffering that may happen, but it's through these kinds of connections that you're building in your community and that Greg and I are building through this podcast and that we have an opportunity as human beings to realize a different way of being together than we have in the last couple of centuries or the last 500 years. Um, I don't really have a question other than what can we do to spread the word to help you reach more of the community that you want to reach? Uh, man, I, I just want to say, I love what you guys do. Uh, you have open conversations and that's what the world needs. And I, I think we're all connecting in, in great ways. It's just being one of them. And so just keep doing what you're doing and, <laughs> I, I think good things happen and, and it's coming from a good place and uh, of, of love and kindness and a uh, good intention in the, you know, in, in the world. And I, I have great hope and faith in humanity. I think we're going to be fine. I think we'll be okay. So let me be explicit. How do people get a hold of you if they want to participate in Kishar? I got you. Uh, we're at Kishar.org, K-I-S-H-A-R.org. And that's the entrance to our community. People can find our socials. We have a pretty cool YouTube channel as well. So check us out. All right. Um, I have a question because, again, I listened to uh, your intro video, that kind of. And you said you were wandering the desert for 11 years? Yeah, 11 or 12 years. Yeah. Is that very literal? Like you were unemployed? You're, in essence, homeless? You're. No, I was. That was me, just just uh, meta- metaphorically wandering the deserts of Kuwait, Iraq, and Afghanistan. All right, so you were contracting at the time of this wandering. Well, I was a soldier, soldier, and then contractor after. Yeah. Okay. But you were spiritually wandering. The questions of the universe were on t- on the top of your mind as you looked at the sky at night, weren't they? <laughs> I, I did have some profound moments of thought uh, out there. The desert's a powerful place, and there's not light pollution out there, right? The light pollution. No, it's dark. Really- yeah. Um, I have another question in your spiritual beliefs and experiences. Has the trickster come up as an important entity in spiritual experience? I, I have, 
a big belief in uh, like having fun and, and being open to like the spontaneity of the universe. And so, yes, I, and I was a bit of a trickster as a kid. So I was a bit of re- life too important to be taken seriously. Like we well, gotta, we gotta, you know, keep that in mind. One of the elements that I understand with the trickster is it can be challenging. It could be what one would think of as darkness or evil. I, I, I think there might be an element of that, but I think that it's all on how we kind of approach it, and and maybe it's different, influenced on different and different people on how they kind of see it come at them, you know. Right. So again, holding the big all, there's this element of evil is necess- is a necessity to enlightenment because it is the stressor which brings us to a point of I've got to change. I cannot do this. I think that's true for most people that kind of like see like, oh, I've got to I've got to go look at this over here and explore this. You know, I got to check this out. Right. Right. Like you said earlier, we tend to naturally not want to examine darkness, but then darkness can be an element that just keeps growing and growing until it can no longer be ignored, which is usually a place of pain. That's right. <laughs> so um, I think there's two things we need to do before we wrap this up. The first is, have you heard the joke about the Buddhist monk who stops at the hot dog stand in New York City? Oh, no. Uh, I haven't. He says, may I have one with everything? <laughs> oh, make me one with everything. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> That's horrible. I, we do. <laughs> um, we do have a very important question. We ask all our guests, and sure. usually it's our final question. But before we ask, is there anything you would like to bring up that we haven't touched upon? Is there any shout outs you'd like to give? We have more time than we think. Don't try to be perfect and love yourself. We have more time than we think. Don't try to be perfect. Love yourself. Awesome. Thank you. I needed that. Yeah. All right. So here's our final question. And John, I just really appreciate your time. I could hang with you a long, long time. So (laughs) blessings to you and your wife and the community you guys are a part of and creating. And this is really important to Mark and I, this question. Foo Fighters or Eminem? <laughs> uh, you know, I love Dave Grohl. He's a great guy. Um, uh, I'm probably going to go with Slim Shady. I, I'm going to go with, with, uh, with Eminem. So uh, I love them both, you know, but it's a, it's a hard question. Uh <laughs> I grew up in I grew up in I was born in eighty one, grew up in the eighties and nineties, very much uh in teenager when, when Eminem was at his height, you know, kinda coming up. So Marshall Mathers and all that. So I, I'd probably go with Eminem. All right. Yeah. I recall him being one of the only very popular voices that when the whole Bush invading Kuwait thing, he was like don't go. Like what the hell are you guys doing? I forget the name of that one song he put out that was yeah, it's very powerful. Yeah. All right. Well, John, again, many blessings. Thank you so Thank much you guys. for your yeah. service and for your ongoing service to humanity. Yeah. Appreciate what you guys do as well. You guys you guys have a blessed uh, weekend. Thank you.
Recording stopped.